He was handsome, he was winsome, he was intelligent. At his trial, the judge said multiple times how much he liked him. He studied economics, he had a doctorate in jurisprudence, he was the research director at the Keele Institute for World Economy. He was a loving father of five kids, so why was he on trial? He had led a German military unit that was responsible for shooting 90,000 Jewish men, women, and children. And we mostly think of Nazi mass extermination camps and we think of the Holocaust, but perhaps two million of the over six million murdered were killed by firing squads, direct line of sight killing. This is killing on a whole nother level. And what shocked the members of the Nuremberg trials was how the leaders of these death squads were not ignorant, brutish beasts. They didn't look like human monsters. They were mostly like this guy, Otto Ohlendorf, who was the eloquent, educated father of five who was hung for his crimes. And my point is not to be shocking or depressing, but for us to think biblically about humanity. As we enter into John's letter today, he's going to make some dramatic claims, like everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. When we read this, we can think of depraved monsters, people so unlike us that we can't understand them. But I assure you that the well-educated, well-cultured men and women of Nuremberg thought that this is who was going to come before them. At the end of World War II, they thought that these Nazi monsters would show up, and they were shocked to find these men and the one who pulled the triggers for them were very much like themselves. And it wasn't just Nazi Germany that reveals the heart of humanity apart from God. We've seen this in Rome, Soviet Union, Rwanda, Cambodia, the Balkans, part of our own American history. Normal people who don't look like human monsters doing monstrous things. Now there are certainly people who've become the equivalent of human monsters, people who've become so depraved that they're more like beasts than image bearers. And these people are in many ways less shocking to us than the normal people who are capable of great evil people like us. 1 John 3, verse 11, This is a message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. John was writing to help the church see through the heresy of the false teachers who were boasting about their new truth. The new, the improved, the contemporary truth was just recycled lies. And it's fascinating to me how John was dealing with that because I read all the time about some new truth that seems to sweep parts of the church And when I study it, the first thing I see is what's not true. The second thing I see is not even remotely new. It's come up over and over through church history. And John says that the original gospel is the truth. 1 John 1.5, 1 John 2.24, 1 John 2.7. The gospel doesn't change. It was first given in the garden right after the fall. Jesus was predicted, the one who would crush the serpent's head. And the entire storyline of the Bible and the center of human history is this same truth. And the truth about Jesus and the way Christians are to live as his children is unalterable. It doesn't change. That doesn't mean we we, we don't have to work hard and think hard about how to live the gospel in our own time and place. Anyone here who's trying to live a single-story life, trying to live consistently in their workplace or school or even their home, no, that can be tough. It's tough to figure it out. But the gospel doesn't change. We just have to figure out what does it mean to live it in our time and place. Who Jesus is, God incarnate, Savior of the world. No one comes to the Father except through him. What we're to become, like Jesus in his holiness, continual growth and moral purity. How we're to treat others with sacrificial love modeled by Christ. So these things never change. And these three things have never been in line with contemporary trends. They've always been out of sync 
with the world, but not out of sync with God. Nothing is ever more relevant, more contemporary than the gospel believed and lived. So this is the message you've heard from the beginning, we should love one another. Now we'll jump down to verse 16, then we'll come back up and, and work our way back to it. But just to show in verse 16, he gives a definition of what love is. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So we're not to define love on our own. God has defined it for us. And any definition or application of love that falls short of the gospel of Jesus is faulty. Look at verse 12. Unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his own brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So John gives a stark contrast of what this love doesn't look like. And he goes back to the first murder, which was a Satan-inspired slaughter. That's what the word literally means. He slaughtered his brother. And Jesus said that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. Cain was of him, just as we are to be of or in Christ. So what was the cause of Cain's murder, John asked. It was because of comparison, jealousy. And the irony, or the tragedy, is that he was jealous of something he could have been himself. He could have been righteous. Somehow in his own sin-twisted mind, instead of changing by turning his life over to God, he thought he could eliminate Abel, whose righteous life served as a reminder of his own unrighteous life. And now to John's point, Cain was a prototype of the world in opposition to God and therefore in opposition to the people of God. If Abel was murdered by his unrighteous brother, don't be surprised when the world hates you. If you seek to be holy to love others, don't wait for the world to stand by and applause. In fact, don't be surprised if you get hate instead. That's what verse 13 says. Part of how the surprise at being hated for following Christ has worked out in the lives of Christians is sometimes we start scrambling to try and become less offensive, more relevant. Something's wrong. I'm following Jesus, I'm loving them, and I'm getting hate back at me. I need to try and change this. Well, it's not that we should manufacture offense by being angry, stubborn, hard to get along with. We shouldn't be hated because we're hateful. But we're warned here, don't be surprised when you are hated. The new Speaker of the House is widely known as a likable guy, nice, kind, intelligent on both sides of the aisle. But his worldview seems to be decidedly Christian and his actions have more consistently aligned with that worldview. Therefore, we can say, therefore, he's going to be hated, especially now that he's on the radar. And this has already started to happen. So we're not going to be hated for doing what righteousness does. It's not going to be confusing because we're not going to be hated for being generally. We're not going to be hated for being kind. You know, I hate you because you're kind. I hate you because you're humble. I hate you because you're patient. He's like for that. <clears throat> but the hatred is going to come for what it says for what our righteousness says, not what righteousness does, but what it says. It says Christ is the center of my life, not me. And humans are not the center of the universe, and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So we shouldn't be surprised when what we believe and what we value brings us hate. And we certainly shouldn't, therefore, try to go along just to get along. That, that never works. It's morally, biblically wrong. But even as we're not surprised when the world hates us, we don't get the hate back. Or better said, we don't have to hate back. Verse 14, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them. This is how we know we've come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We also should lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Bethel McGrew, in an online commentary, spoke about the savage murder of political activist Ryan Carson in New York recently. 
And she talked about how some were saying that his murder was a fitting reward for his left-wing activism. She said that some saw Carson as the right sort of victim. He deserved it. But she said, of course, this vice, which is rejoicing in certain kinds of death, cuts across the political spectrum. Earlier this year, she said, we saw left-wing social media mocking the death of the rich white men who died on the Titan submarine. On the left and the right alike, no death is too cruel to be converted into a celebratory meme. In fact, she said, the crueler the death, the more memes it seems to generate. Meanwhile, some self-styled conservatives have proposed that compassion is wasted on our political enemies. One of these, of these um, political, one of these commentators said that Carson and his girlfriend promoted abortion on demand. They sided with violent criminals against cops and wanted to hound conservatives out of the public square. And so their reasoning was they wouldn't show conservatives mercy. Why should we conservatives back down and give ground by showing them mercy now? And when I read that, I thought that's as stupid as it is wicked. How is it backing down or giving ground to be grieved that a man was murdered, regardless of whether you agree with him or disagree with him? You know, even as I read about leaders in war, even the best leaders in war, World War II, they didn't hate their enemies. Hate makes us stupid. Hate makes us wicked. If we live like Christ, the sinful world in both the left and the right versions of it are going to hate us and reject us, and we don't hate back. And history confirms what the Bible teaches us. No human heart is beyond becoming full of hatred and even murder. Now we can think John's overplaying his hand when he equates hatred and murder, using the example of Cain killing his brother. But John is directly quoting his master, Jesus, who said the same thing. And we tend to believe that this stuff is for the dark souls that lurk in the shadows, the Nazis. It really doesn't apply to the normal people we live and work around. It doesn't apply to us. But when the people you live and work around hear of wealthy people dying in the ocean or see a man stabbed to death in a park and think, yep, they deserved it because of their ideas, you're seeing the darkness as possible for every human heart. Don't miss it. And so John gives this direct two-part challenge. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. Meanwhile, you must love others whether they hate you or love you back. A lack of love, John writes, is evidence of spiritual death. Again, quoting his master, hate is murder. And John isn't saying here that a murderer can't be forgiven. Jesus prayed for those murdering him that they would be forgiven. And there have been people who've murdered whose hearts have been changed by the gospel. He's stating the fact that no one with eternal life in them is going to go out and murder someone. No one with eternal life in them is going to actively continue to hate someone. Look again at John, 1 John 3.16, which is a practical application of the famous John 3.16. John 3.16 for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. 1 John 3, 16, this is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So love is not, again, going along to get along. Love is being willing to lay down your life for others, even if, especially if they hate you. And then John brilliantly heads off the normal direction our minds take us. <clears throat> so we hear that about laying our lives down like Christ did, and we say, count me in. I'll, I'll die for others. I'll take a bullet from my friends. Even a stranger, I'm willing to be persecuted for my faith. Okay, great. Will you be patient with the person right in front of you? You'll take a bullet for him, but would you love the person who disagrees with you politically? Would you be kind to the angry waitress? Would you not curse the guy who cuts you off on Kellogg? And then the tests of all tests, will you love your spouse? Taking a bullet for a friend or even an enemy can be easier than being patient with them or serving them when it's inconvenient. And that's really what John's getting at in verse 17. 
If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, again, he's quoting his master, Jesus, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? So we hear the grand stuff, I'll lay my life down for you. Yeah, but will you love this person? One commentator wrote, it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. And John is enormously practical. He has no patience with theology that doesn't make it into our actual lives. So in verse 18, he doesn't say, you should, but he said, let us. He includes himself in the challenge. Little children, let us not love in word or deed, but in action and truth. So he's taken us out of the clouds. We're up here with this big macro. I'll, I'll die for you, Jesus. I'll die for someone else. And he's like, no, come right down here. Will you love that person right there? So here's a summary of John's teaching in this passage. Hatred characterizes the world whose prototype is Cain. It originates in the devil. It issues in murder and is evidence of spiritual death. Love characterizes the church whose prototype is Christ. It originates in God, issues in self-sacrifice, and is evidence of eternal life. The next paragraph begins and ends with this is how we know. Remember, John wants his friends to have certainty. Certainty, the right kind of certainty about the right things, leads to a right kind of life. So in 1 John, he's going to write, I've written these things so you'll know you have eternal life. The three tests, the truth test, who is Christ, the moral test, live holy like Christ, the love test, love others as Christ did, are given to help us increase our certainty. And with this in mind, certainty in mind, John's going to address the problem of the condemning heart, the problem of the uncertain heart, because sometimes our hearts just need assurance. assurance. I spoke recently with several people who lacked assurance of peace with God. They heard the gospel, I think they understood the gospel, but their own hearts condemned them. What do you do with that? Maybe you feel continual guilt in your own life for past or ongoing sins. Maybe you feel like God hasn't or wouldn't save you or forgive you. And it could be that you feel that way because your conscience, this wonderful thing that Paul says in Romans 2, is a gift from God to direct us to God. Maybe your conscience is warning you that you don't have a relationship with God. And if that's the case, then don't ignore God by ignoring it. It could be that you're continuing in unrepentant sin, and when that happens, our heart is warning us to move back to a life of obedience to Christ. If that's the case, then, then don't disregard your heart. Then, and this is what John's addressing here, it could be that your heart is simply lying to you. In this case, you have to believe what's real regardless of what you feel. Verse 19, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. So believing truth with our minds is how we silence the doubts of our hearts. And this really comes down to not believing our minds versus our hearts. It's about believing God, what he has said, versus believing what we currently feel. Because in the scripture, there's not this, this dichotomy between what we call heart and mind. The words are really used interchangeably often. The heart in the Bible is the real thinking, choosing, feeling, believing you. And there are many reasons we may feel or believe false condemnation. One reason is Satan is called the accuser. That's his call sign. He loves to attack our confidence in Christ. So if he attacks our confidence in Christ, if our hearts condemn us inappropriately, it undermines evangelism. I mean, who's going to share their faith when you feel like, look at me, I'm a worthless condemned person myself. But scripture says we don't proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Christ as Lord. 
It undermines our efforts to change our holiness. I mean, because if we're feeling the condemnation in our own hearts, then how are we going to be motivated to change? We feel continually beat down. It undermines our love for others because it's a focus on self. Satan loves to accuse us and undermine our confidence because that undermines our actions. And then our own physiological and psychological state can lead to false condemnation. We are all these complex spiritual, physical hybrids, and we can suffer spiritual doubts, what we think are spiritual doubts, because of physical and mental problems. Depression, physical illness, these can affect us. And we can, and people often do. I've had many of these conversations. It's been true for me before. We can confuse our own sadness or depression or anxiety for a lack of peace with God. And then when we compare ourselves to others, particularly we compare our insides to their outsides, we can lack assurance with God because we, we do this compare and contrast. They look happy, holy, squared away. They look always at peace. Look at me. I'm a mess. It's like, to me, it's like driving by, driving through a neighborhood on a dark, cold, snowy night, and you drive by and there's a window with a warm glow coming out of it. You just drive by. And from that single view, you build a scenario. Boy, I bet they're happy in there. I bet they have a great family. I bet their kids are all sitting around reading books around a fire. They never have to put wood on. It just continues to go. (laughs) And we build this scenario from driving past a single lighted window. And that's how we do. We walk through life doing that. Stop it. Just stop it. The right way to think about this is 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation to seize you except what is common to all. And God is faithful. He'll provide a way out so you can bear underneath it. What you need to do as you walk around is we're all essentially the same. We don't struggle. We don't all struggle the same ways, but we all are the same in that we struggle. And we have to stop doing the compare and contrast. That was Cain's trap. Instead of Cain turning to God, he's focused on Abel. God has given you and will give you all you need to know and love him. And John has a very practical strategy for dealing with the condemning heart. Get busy loving others in Jesus' name. Quit navel-gazing. Go start serving others. I don't think I've ever known someone who was actively engaged in the lives of people rather than sitting around and stewing in their own hearts who wasn't experiencing some peace in Christ. And there are people who have been Christians for a while who've walked in here, sat alone, took on their no face, and then walked away complaining about how unfriendly you, we are, And there are people who have not been Christians very long who've walked in here, engaged others, and went away with new friends and increased faith. So my dad had times of spiritual struggle, sometimes really difficult struggle. He would pray, he would read. He believed, he believed for a long time, but he would sometimes struggle. And what he would do, his go-to strategy, especially the last 15 years of life, is he would take out a little card, he would write the list of people he's going to serve that day, then he'd go out and drive around, serving people, showing practical love in the name of Jesus. And the struggle didn't end, but it would lose, this doubt, this struggle would lose its grip on his heart. Faith would start winning, not the condemning heart. When he went and loved people in Jesus' name, this picture was him the night that he was hurt. Two weeks later, he died. He was out on a Sunday night. He was loving a hurting family. This little girl was loving him back. Now, biblical belief and biblical action, belief, belief Jesus is the Christ, Now go and love others like Christ did. That's how we deal with our uncertain hearts. We don't sit at home and look inside and stew. If you look at verse 20, there's a kind of trial here. Our hearts are the accuser. We are the defendants. God is the judge. 
our hearts accuse us. God has said in Christ he's accepted us. We move forward with confidence in God's verdict because God is greater than our own condemning hearts. And so if you struggle with this, again, pay attention. It could be the Holy Spirit is speaking through your conscience to you, but it could be your heart is just lying to you and it's going to keep you forever ineffective. So next, John turns from the condemning heart to a heart at peace with God. He gives two blessings of this heart at peace. First, a confident relationship with God that's free and unrestricted. And then a confident access to God in prayer. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. It's confidence before God. That phrase just means we have this relationship, an open, healthy relationship. So we have confidence before God. We don't have to hide from him. We come to him knowing we're fully accepted. Now keep in mind all that John has written up to this point. This doesn't mean our sins are not serious. They are. But we're not to continue in them. But as we live messing up, fessing up, we can move on. As I said before, this mess up, fess up, move on phrase is not making light of sin. It's making much of grace. That we can confidently come to God. We don't have to spend time after we sin. Spend time waiting for God to cool down. Spend time hiding and sliding, spend time sort of figuring out a way to pay for our sins. We don't do penance. It's not biblical. What we do is we come to God immediately. And we can freely and confidently confess our, bring our request to God. Prayer is unrestricted. doesn't mean we get whatever we want. If I confess my sins, the big guy's going to give me all that I want. That's not what this says. We obey his commands and we do what pleases him. This isn't obey so you get what you want. This is about tuning our hearts to his will. And Jesus really showed us how this works. He asked for what he wanted. If possible, take this cup from me. He surrendered to what his father wanted. Not my will, but yours be done. Let's finish up this passage, verse 23. Now this is his command that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commands remains in him and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit he's given us. And so it sounds like two commands, believe in Jesus and love one another. But for John, they're flip sides of a single coin. If you love Jesus, you're going to love others. And that's been his point in this entire passage. If you want to increase your confidence to live with real certainty, pay attention to these three things, things, the, the truth test. Pay attention to this. Christ is the Savior of the world. He is the center of human history. God has become flesh and saved us. This is the fact. The moral test, become like him, pay attention to him, train to become holy. The social test, love others as he loved them. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we're to lay down our lives for others. So believe God, not your own heart, when it tells you other than what God has said in the gospel. Years ago, I read a book called Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life. The book was okay, but the title was awesome. I love the title. Not a good reason to, to, to read a book, um, but they were smart in, in making that title because it made me read the book. John is saying, here, move into the lives of others, knowing them as, loving them as Christ has loved you. Get out of your mind, get out of your own heart, and get out into your life. And your life is in Christ, loving people like he loves them. So John's writing about what's eternally old and perpetually new. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one. Yet I'm writing you a new command. So what he's saying is, is this is eternally old and this is to be manifestly 
always knew in your life. He was addressing these theological innovators. These weren't people who were creatively applying old truth to new situations. They were trying to come up with new stuff that wasn't even true. And what's ironic is, is they weren't actually loving people. They were misusing people and manipulating people, which is most often what, what lies do. So we aren't chasing the insecurity of passing relevance. We want to live in the security of eternal permanence. It doesn't mean we're, in, we're to intentionally going looking for irrelevancy. You could be irrelevant just because you're not believing what's true. Lies are never relevant. And if we're not believing what's true, we need to adjust to the Bible. And there are certain things that we don't know. God hasn't told us everything. You've heard me quote it a million times, Deuteronomy 29, 29. But that doesn't mean we're not certain about what we do know. So we have to be humble both about both what we're sure of, we're humble about what we know, and we're humble about what we don't know. What we're not sure about, we trust God with. And we can tell people, I don't know. But what we are sure about, we're sure about only because God's revealed it to us, not because we're smart or good. We're to be sure about the gospel. We're to be sure about our relationship with God. World religions teach insecurity that you'll find out when you get there if your good and bad deeds stacked up. That's not the gospel. 1 John 5, 12, I've written so you will know. We're to be sure about our purpose to grow in Christ-likeness. We don't have to spend our lives guessing, hoping we get it right. We don't have to be a person who gets to their deathbed and looks back and say, I missed it. We don't have to. He's told us. Spend your life like this, and when you get to the end, you won't have to live in those regrets. We can be certain because God in his mercy has given us certainty. And because God gave us certainty, we can never be arrogant in our certainty. We don't need to be grumpy or combative in our certainty. When we become combative, it's evidence that we're not certain. We don't need to be embarrassed or apologetic. Well, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm certain about that. Why are you sorry? It was a gift. Be grateful. We're to be humble, grateful, and proactive in our certainty. Certainty in that what we believe is the core truth of human history. We know why we're here. We know how this ends. Physicists have long looked for what's come to be called the theory of everything, and they haven't found it, by the way. In fact, over 100 years of debate and research by really smart people, they still don't agree on the foundations of quantum physics. They split into at least three schools, two main schools. Now, they know, they know quantum physics works because they can do the math. Your computer and your cell phone depends on it. They don't agree on why it works. It's just like a kid can, I can take a couple three-year-olds and then go over there and flip that light switch on and off. They can make these lights work. They have no idea how it works or why it works, but they know it does. And that's how these quantum physicists are. One school of quantum physics is agnostic about why it works. They just, they're just pragmatic about how it works. And so I read where one of them said to a colleague who was still struggling with the why, he said, shut up and do the math. And one physicist who actually thought up what's now called the multiverse or the, or the many worlds interpretation, he stopped trying to figure out why and went off and just made a, made a lot of money with the how. He made a lot of money working for the government, doing the math and turning the math into profit. He also used this money to drink, smoke, and eat excessively. He lived in an open marriage, having multiple affairs. And when he died at age 52, what was left of his broken family, as per his direct wishes, they took his cremated ashes out and put them in the garbage. He was a committed atheist. There was no ultimate why for anything. 
He had theory. He had a theory of everything. But he had no revelation, no truth about really what your life was about. It meant nothing in the end. His was, as I read about his life, I thought, what a terrible, empty, wasted life. And God has given us truth about what's real, the truth about everything, and it's no theory. It's the revealed truth of God. God has given us how we're to live our lives in line with that truth. And we should rejoice in the certainty of the gospel. We have to be humble, grateful, and confident. There's certainly no reason to be grumpy or insecure about having been gifted with the meaning of everything. Not a theory, but a revelation. And so you can expect to be hated by some if you live with this certainty. Now, if you're hated because you're smug, that's your problem. But if you're hated because you're certain, certainty as a gift, you don't get to hate back. You are to manifest the kind of love that this certainty requires of you. And who knows, some people who hate you now might someday become certain of the gospel themselves. It's happened. Let's pray together. We give you an opportunity to talk to God while the worship team comes. You can pray about, of course, whatever you want, but one line of prayer might be along the lines of your own condemning heart. If your heart condemns you, it could be that you have not yet given your life to Christ. And if that's the case, pay attention carefully to your heart. It could be your heart condemns you because you're living in persistent, unrepentant sin. If so, pay attention to your heart. It could be that your heart is just lying to you. If so, pay attention to what God has said to you in the gospel.